tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Heard a shining cuckoo yet? I'm in a bit of a spring theme. You know the shining cuckoo sound? I should have brought it in, shouldn't I? Show and tell. I, I think I might be able to do one. They fly from freaking miles away. The Marquesas or wherever the hell that is. Um, somewhere tropical. It's the shining cuckoo. They come here to New Zealand to breed. They take over the grey warbler's nests and others, I think, whiteheads, but, but uh, mainly the grey warbler. The grey warblers cope. My goodness, the grey warbler should be bird of the year every year. But anyway, the shining cuckoo, I'll do my best. Having not remembered to bring in the, or only thought of it now, the shining cookie sound. It's this thing. Oh, you wouldn't believe the effort I just put into that. Bringing a lot of New Zealand today. And the signal of spring, the visual one, really the first big visual one is the coal-fired flowers. Big yellow bomb all over the country. And find out all about this amazing tree, the first apparently to be cultivated overseas. Um, uh, 1774, one flowered in Chelsea in London. 1774, freak. Find out about that in the next hour. Next up, though, James Crook takes us to the movies. Uh, two biopics, McQueen, not Steve, the fashion designer. And McKellen, not Arnold, the fitter and turner from Teatro 2. Ian, the actor. The Weekend Variety Wireless. At the movies with James Crook on Radio Live. couple of biopics this week, James. One, I know who Ian McKellen is, but this McQueen kid, the fashion designer, I didn't know anything about him, but it looks fascinating. Yeah, well, that's the thing, really. I don't I don't think a lot of Kiwis probably, I mean, they knew, certainly knew of his work, of Lee Alexander McQueen, and of course Alexander McQueen was what he was most famously made for, but I had no idea that it, basically he was uh, a boy from the East End of London. He certainly looked like the least likely fashion designer ever. I mean, in a lot of ways, he, I mean, he had a makeover, if you like, partway through his career when he became the head designer for some of those various French and Italian fashion houses. But he pretty much looked like your typical West Ham supporter, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, best description. Millwall, I think. Millwall. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, just about. You know, there have been a lot of really good fashion documentaries in the last few years. I think that's an area, that music probably, where people have hit upon a style, almost a template, a formula for being able to get the best out of these incredible kind of stories. I mean, let's be honest, they always provide a kind of visual excitement and McQueen was one of the most controversial in a lot of ways almost the Damien Hurst of the fashion industry he was obsessed with death and those kind of you know and really pushing the envelope in terms of what was considered acceptable within the fashion industry and and haute couture as yeah. well 
Okay, the trailer's actually worth it for some of the audio. He was a sweet boy from the East End. I wasn't very good at school. I was always drawing clothes in science, in biology. He's got nothing, and yet he was determined this is what he was going to do. I bought all my fabrics with my doll money. And what was that East End job that uses a needle? McQueen discovered himself. Nobody could create emotion like McQueen. If you leave without emotion, then I'm not doing my job properly. I want you to be repulsed or exhilarated. As long as it's an emotion. In my work, everything I do is personal. Even turning Kate Moss into a hologram. I do 14 collections a year, so the pressure's immense. These clothes have all this slashing and sex and romance. And the darkness created genius. He thought the system was against him. The fragility of life. We can all be discarded quite easily. There you go. All right, there he is with his fancy clothes and everything. He definitely wanted to provoke from the off in terms of once he, you know, had established himself. Um, one of his early shows was called something like Scottish Rape or something like that. Another one was inspired by Jack the Ripper. I mean, it was very much theatre and less about ready-to-wear clothing. I mean, he had to develop over the years and create things that were going to be able to persuade people to part with their cash as well. Um, but, you know, he kept his own McQueen brand while at the same time heading up places like Givenchy and, you know, all, all those sorts of things. There is a certain amount of talking heads of people talking about his legacy. There is a tragic end, which people may or may not know. We won't go into any more of that, but certainly you could see how passionate he was was about the things that he was interested in and the darker side of life as well. And it's interesting, some of the people that were close to him, and I mean, he was, well, I won't say besotted with his mother, but his mother was very close to him and they had a, you know, a really interesting kind of relationship. Um, a touch of the Norman Bates? Yeah, well, I don't... From Psycho? I want to say no, and then I'm always tempted to say, well... Yeah. I don't think it was quite as obsessive as that, but but also Isabella Blow, who was one of those... Do we describe her as the 90s and noughties version of a social influencer, I guess? Mm. She was the one who discovered McQueen, as well as the great hat maker, Philip Treacy. She was basically a clothes horse for these two. She was prepared to wear the wackier creations and she would get photographed. She and McQueen had an incredible falling out right. because he went off to do things in, in France sort of without her. She got very upset. Oh, okay. Look, I think this is a really good job of piecing together career highlights, finding those old audio bits, finding all the video bits, finding really candid kind of thing, using that whole... I guess audio and visual montage thing that's become the du rigueur in uh, documentaries at the moment. You know, you, you, rather than having people talking to camera all the time, you also get those audio overlays on top of really crazy visuals. One thing is the music sometimes goes a bit over the top and you, you almost miss some audio. That seems to be a common problem as well now. Yeah, isn't that on. a pain in the neck? Can people stop yeah, that, please? Off. Exactly. Actually, there's a documentary on the Spitfire at the moment, which is really annoying for that. No. Yeah, and you'd think if the majority of your audience is potentially skewing older, why the heck would you do it? just seems crazy. I can, anyway. I can listen to a Spitfire all day. Yeah, well, I would have preferred just to hear that. Yeah, it's the sound of freedom. 
That's exactly. what it is. Never exactly. before in the history of bloody hell of so few done so much for with so little in Winston Churchill. All right. Yeah. But, yeah, the score here in McQueen is by Michael Nyman, who, of course, is famous for the piano. And I believe there are some bits from the piano that are used as part of this. But, anyway, in terms of a, a look at one of fashion's awful dribblers, mm. it, it's certainly enlightening, that's for sure. Because, to be honest, I just knew you made some wacky clothes. So I didn't realise just how the kind of juxtaposition between the bloke himself and what he created, really. Do you have to be somewhat interested in bullshit, or sorry, your fashion? Yeah, I think the wider idea of visual art more than anything else. Right, okay. Which, and, and we all know things like world of wearable art in New Zealand have a much wider appeal than, say, the strict fashion industry. That's you can sure. make the argument with the wearable art awards, though, that it's neither wearable nor art. <laughs> And there's an argument here. There are certainly people who, who should give this a wide berth, but I think I, I'm always interested in these kind of figures you hear about but don't know a lot about, and, yeah. and, and often this is the way in. He and, looks like yeah, an interesting cat. That'll do. Yep. Here he comes, one of the greats, Ian McKellen. I'm a 30-year-old actor earning £50 a week. It used to be that it was my secret, my life, my profession. What side of Ian McKellen am I going to present? I was the lad who loved the theatre. I went into the dressing rooms, right up close to performers. I was, I was just fascinated. Anything you could want from a human being, I found it working in the theatre particularly. I was able to just be, exist. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. McKellen. Ian McKellen. British actor Ian I McKellen. Think he's One of this country's best star. actors. The man said to be the leading classical actor of his generation. I had no ambitions to become a film actor. There are very few actors who have been in two popular franchises. You people said we can't have Gandalf the gay, but apparently you could. I spent the first 49 years of my life having to pretend to be something other than I was. It exists in society. Be at ease with it. Admit there is a variety. My professional life is devoted to strangers. Stories bring human beings together. If you don't do Eurovision properly, do you know what will happen? You'll All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. The camera, well, you just forget about it. Can't forget about it, but uh, you know it's there, but it's, uh, it's another friend. Here's a man who's been in two of the biggest movie franchises in the world, but didn't really become known as a movie actor until the last 20 years. But that's that thing, and it's not exclusively, but goodness me, the British do hold on to it. The theatre, dear boy. Theatre. Yeah, that is where exactly. it's at. Not this filmy rubbish popcorn. Theatre. Well, one of the funny things about this documentary, which is essentially a, a sit-down with McAllen interspersed with a whole lot of archival footage and various clips and bits from his career, is the fact that he actually looks back at his career and goes, 
Oh, hang on. I actually was quite keen to do movies, and apparently I told everyone that. <laughs> I might have denied it at the time and said, oh, no, there's a dear boy. But actually, I wouldn't have minded doing some more movies early on. This is the man who became both Magneto and Gandalf, and now has to say you shall not pass wherever he turns up. <laughs> but, I mean, he is a funny man, and, and, of course, he's one of those great British thespians who decided they were more than happy to send themselves up on that brilliant Ricky Gervais series extras. Yeah, good on him. And there's a lot of discussion about uh, his gayness. I hope today it matters not a jot, but he was around in a day which was a bit different. Yeah, he was. I guess he was in America at the time of things like Stonewall and the AIDS epidemic at its height. And so it was that that led him to become this kind of campaigner slash icon. Yeah. But again, it was a long time after that before he was any, anything more than a stage actor. And, and in fact, although he was on Broadway at that time, he hated the West End. He thought it was pretentious tourist claptrap. He'd much rather be spending a couple of weeks in rainy Leeds doing some Shakespeare than in the bright lights of some, you know, big musical or big drama. Oh, bless. He was kind of a contemporary of Branagh in terms of Branagh bringing Shakespeare to the masses. But, I mean, once somebody actually gave him a chance to show up on the big screen, who can forget his Richard III, mm. which kind of transplanted the play to, a, a what, essentially 1930s Germany, wasn't it? He played Richard III as Hitler. Now's the winter of our yeah. discontent. Smile and murder while I smile. Yes. It's my favourite. OK. Because you were talking about McKellen... Yep. Not being known in film, but being a great stage actor for years and years and years. Is there one today? Oh, that's a very good point. We're talking cinema, so I'm not expecting you to know, but it's a question. I think these days, in order to survive, actors have kind of had to be able to cross over those kind of things. All right, thank you, James. We've been looking at McQueen, the Johnny Lydon of fashion. Both of these movies are just named after the surname, aren't they? McKellen's the other one. McKellen is McKellen playing the part. Okay. All right. And as I stated earlier, I could listen to a Spitfire all day. <laughs> yeah, that one's definitely, just, just as a side note, that one is certainly interesting and worth checking out. I mean, certainly is enlightening on the, on the whole Spitfire ethos. I didn't realise it was designed by a guy who never saw, saw them fly. He died within a year of the first flight. Oh. And they even made a movie about him with Leslie Howard, and, which came out in the middle of the 40s, designed as a kind of piece of British propaganda. Marvellous. Okay, thank you very much, James. No worries. <laughs> Next up, Max Cryer on words. Why is a pope? Okay, we'll leave you with the sound of defiance and courage in the face of near insurmountable odds. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Weekend Variety Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Here he is, Max Cryer, on the first day of September. How are you, Max? I'm surviving through August into September with joy. Yay! You do look very happy. That's Thank great. You, yes. I'm so glad. <laughs> Just because you've seen me. I won't go to the Mae West quote. Oh, but that does help. Seeing you does help. Oh, thank you. What is the Mae West quote? 
Are you pleased to see, well, come up and see me sometime, or are you pleased to see me? You know, all those sort of things. She said that to me, and I actually did go up and see her. Oh, brilliant. Several times in her... Oh, let's, let's <laughs> we'll just discard the word of the week and everything. Her... Let's tell us about your meeting with May West. Meeting plural. Um, well, the flat was all white, everything, all the furniture, the carpets, the walls were all white. But most of the furniture, to keep it white, was covered with plastic covering. She wore all white all over um, with very, very long sweeping skirts that touched the ground because Mae West was tiny. She was a tiny, tiny, tiny little short lady. Um, and at that age, whatever she was when I knew her, um, it wasn't all that wise to have long hair down to the shoulders because it was getting a little sparse, shall we say. Oh. But she was witty and she was on the mark and she was fun. And she did say, come up and see me sometimes. And she made naughtiness a good thing. She broke huge barriers in America and she was sent to jail because of it. She Get was sent out. to court. Yes, in the very early days, mm. she was in a play called Sex, S-E-X, and this caused something of a ruckus. But in later years, much later years, she was generally admired for having sort of moved the perception, right. and especially towards women who weren't slim, tall and glamorous, because she was short and bulky. Mm. But she, but, but she, she had the, she, she had spunk. Oh, she had the magic, and in every pore, oozing from every pore, she mm. had the magic. Yeah. Yes, I knew her quite well. Right. Well, well oh, what was the um, occasion? Just the cocktails at midnight after the show, was it for, for Mae West no, when you like came her. up and saw her? No, no. I used to when I was in Los Angeles, I'd give her a, a ring on the phone, and maybe mid-afternoon. And, the flat had purified air. She was very keen on not breathing Los Angeles air. Oh. And her flat and her car had some sort of purification so that she only breathed perfect sort of whatever perfect air is oh. without noxious car fumes and that sort of thing. Oh. And that was presumably in order to um, retain her looks, oh. which were not in bad shape for 80. No, no, OK. Did she um, still have the swimming pool next to the billiard room by the cocktail cabinet like no. it was? Oh, she no. changed it. Well, the flat she was living in then, oh. um, was she was up on the third floor. I mean, it's hard to have a swing door oh, on the oh, third floor. <laughs> oh, right, 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 OK. I didn't know you knew her earlier flat. <laughs> <laughs> nice story, Max. Anything else you want to spill it's about Mae West true. before we go? It's absolutely true. I'll show you the picture one day. Oh, lovely. Thank you. All right. We shall venture into our word of the week before addressing the questions you've tabled to Max, uh, including coffin, Afghans, hunky-dory. Uh, if you want to ask Max something, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a, a, an email form clearly labelled there. You can ask a question on the Facebook page, Weekend Variety Wireless, look it up. And the mail, P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. Let's go for the word of the week. Pope. Pope. He's been in Ireland, hasn't he? Yes, he has. But I'm dealing with the word Pope, about which I can see something rather odd. Um, the word father has two meanings. One of them is practical, the male parent of any child, and one is figurative, he who establishes a tradition or of something or who leads the father of, you could say, who mm -hmm. invented something. Now, the Italian word papa 
Father is the appellation by which the Pope is known among Italian speakers since the year 300. When it is said, it is somehow perceived as not being anyone's actual father by a very simple fact. They always put the word the in front of it. Il Papa. You do not hear the Pope in Italian referring to as Papa, but Il Papa, the father. A man who in English we call the Pope. Now, this is what intrigued me. Why do we call, why do we say Pope? Now, currently, the Pope himself and the priesthood he administers proclaim celibacy. But that has not always been so. Is so, all right? That what he told you? Is that what who told me? Oh, they proclaim it, right? They proclaim it, yes. But in the past, there have been several popes who have been married. Some were, in fact, fathers having children. Others had mistresses, though not recently. Why, in English, he is known as Pope? That's the bit that intrigued me. Where did this word come from, rather than just translating Papa? Perhaps in a, in, a, in a nation or in nations in which one religion does not dominate, it didn't seem, um, it didn't seem wise to call him Father in English because there are other religions in England and uh, there's no reason why one person should be elevated to be Father when the other aren't. But the English language has called him Pope for nearly a thousand years. Now, the word, I tracked the word down. In English, the word Pope is actually derived from an ancient Latin word meaning tutor. Now, in ancient Greek, that word had a sort of affiliation with the authority of a father figure, the tutor, the teacher, very vaguely. However, in approximately the year 950, that word transferred into English to refer to the head of the Roman Catholic Church as the Pope rather than the Father. Okay. So it's disambiguity from the Anglicans and things like that. Well, it's, it is recognised as being one of the religions. Uh, I think in Italy it is recognised as the main religion. Right, yeah. And previously it was in Ireland until a few things happened. Uh, what, how recently do you mean? <laughs> Far out. Okay, um, let's have a look at one of the questions that have come to Max's inbox. Uh, the origin of coffin. And you're talking about the usually horizontal box, <laughs> usually made of wood, in which uh, dead people are put. Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes and I think it was rather unfortunate that I put the word coffin today straight after the word Pope, but that's how it fell out in the mix. Well, the listener was a bit taken aback because of reading a book set in the past century and it mentioned, quote, a pie being served in a pastry coffin, end quote. Ah. Well, that's the explanation in just one word, because in past times the word coffin simply meant a container, a case. It goes way back to ancient Latin, coffinus, meaning a basket or a hamper, and that passed through French and then into English in the 1300s, where it was used to describe a chest or a box of valuables, and gradually also came mainly to name the crust part of a pie. The filling would be poured into a pastry case, which was called a pie coffin. Nothing to do with dead bodies. Quite often, the pastry case wasn't seen as part of the pie, just a solid container for the filling. Pastry in those days was rather crude. It was a mixture of flour, suet and boiling water. 
The main purpose was simply to create a solid container for the ingredients in the pie, and the filling was considered the important part. And the filling was served from out of the baked coffin, after which the pastry coffin would often then be discarded. Uh, the flour itself was stronger than what we call normal flour. It was often made from very coarsely ground rye plus suet mixed with hot water, and it made an early form of hot water crust pastry, which was tough around the food. But it did soak up a small amount of meat juice, and the house servants would sometimes eat it when the empty coffin was sent back to the kitchen. Now, those pastry coffins were sometimes so tough that if folded over like a Cornish pasty or covered with another pastry lid, the filling inside could be preserved for several months and country dwellers could send a filled coffin pie over long distances as gifts to friends in other towns or areas. Now, during the following 200 years, we're into the 1500s. I'm hungry now, man. <laughs> well, you won't be now, because in the 1500s, the meaning extended from pies to mean the chest or box in which the dead human body is placed for burial. Good heavens. It's not clear why the shift took place, except that coffin always meant container, as in containing meat, containing apples, mm -hmm. and then containing bodies. I suppose essentially containing meat. From there on, there were one or two side meanings. Um, in the early 1800s, a vehicle, a vehicle regarded as unsafe was occasionally referred to as a coffin. And from 1880, 1880, right up to the present day, people will sometimes call a cigarette a coffin nail. Oh, yeah. But they all refer to the wooden casket in which a body is laid. Which and not, came from a pie. Which came from a pie which had apples in a coffin made of pastry. Far out! It's true! Who'd have thunk it, eh? <laughs> but I suppose we get to say that quite a bit on this particular feature of the Weekend Variety Wireless. Who'd have thunk it? On Radio it? Light. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Um, friend of mine's father, very, very good friend, and I knew his father quite well, Hamish, Scotsman, um, built his own coffin not long ago. He knew he was dying, so he went to placemakers, got all the wood, gave it a crack, you know, got out the the um, various appliances, the power drill in order to, to make it. Um, a few mistakes here and there, but he did. He had to get a permit really? in order to make his own coffin, oh. and you had to have a lead inserted thing with his initials and surname on it for some reason. Um, the handles were great, made of toilet roll holders and number eight wire. And it was just your standard old, uh, I think, five-ply, uh, didn't have to be treated, five-ply from placemakers. He did it himself, tested it out, got in it, had to make some adjustments. But he was buried he, in it. He got in it and then presumably got out of it after he'd measured it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know of another one. Um, sadly, Ray Columbus knew towards the end that he wasn't going to last. And he and his wife bought a coffin and took it home. And without Ray knowing it, because he was very ill then, his wife painted it brilliant red. Oh. Absolutely brilliant red with gold notes around the sides. And uh, Ray never actually saw it. But at, at the funeral, at the cathedral, when the red coffin was brought in by the coffin bearers, it was absolutely a sort of a quintessential Ray Columbus moment that this brilliant red coffin for the, 
for the first time that anyone could ever remember, a red coffin went down the aisle of the cathedral. He was still a star on stage. He was still a star. Yeah. Well, wasn't that long ago, was it, that um, Ray died? Oh, he'd been ill for a long time. Mm. All right. Uh, we'll take a short break. They're all the same size. I don't know why I say short. Um, and Max Cry will return the other side of that and address Afghans, hunky-dory, and we should have time for some Angostura bitters as well. Uh, weekend Variety Wireless. Max Cry here, answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Always a fascinating story when you delve into the murky depths of the English language. Uh, we're going to borrow from another language and culture, although well, it's anglicised, I'm sure, Afghans, and why we call the biscuits Afghans, or somebody asks, yes. why are the biscuits called Afghans? And why are the rugs called Afghan rugs, and why are the dogs called Afghan hounds? So you're quite right, we've borrowed into another culture in a big way. It's toponomy here, the naming of things after places. Many things are bikinis after an atoll island. Denim is named after the city of Nimes. Currants come from Corinth. Tangerines from Tangiers. Camembert from the village of Camembert. Tweed from a river in Scotland. Muslin after the town of Mosul. Dollars from Joachim's Tal, a valley in Bohemia. Spaghetti Bolognese from Bologna. They're all named after places. Note, however, that Santa Claus does not come from Turkey, but turkeys don't come from Turkey. Santa Claus, I'm sorry, does come from Turkey, but turkeys don't come from Turkey, they come from Mexico. And guinea pigs don't come from Guinea, they come from the Andes in South America. So Afghan, Afghan. Well, it appears in various differing names of things. Afghan hounds actually originated in Egypt thousands of years BC. They spread to India and Afghanistan where they became renowned. They're strong, fast, agile hunting dogs, favoured by shepherds, excellent as watchdogs. For centuries, the particular breed within Afghanistan was kept pure. No dogs were sold for export, but the breed, the breed gradually filtered to the outside world in the 1900s and they became known as Afghan hounds. Now, there are also shawls and rugs called Afghans. They've been woven in Asia for centuries. The word shawl comes from the Iranian language and for many years the most desirable shawls were made in Kashmir in, in India. And so the 18th century styles and techniques were copied and shawls were called Kashmiri or Kashmir, which is another toponym. During the 19th century, hundreds of shawls and rugs were being brought into Britain and by 1833 the word Afghan was being used. It described a lightweight shawl for the shoulders that may not have come from Afghanistan, just somewhere in Asia. By 1877, there were larger items described as knee rugs, and these too were called Afghans. But the most recent development in this fashion is a rug-type shawl called Pashmina, because Pashmina is the Iranian word for wool. Oh, is it? Yes, and they're normally woven from goat's wool, but the shawls themselves are made in Nepal. So there's a total confusion about what comes from where in the world of garments and dogs. And the name of Afghan biscuits is equally confusing. They appear to be only within Australia and New Zealand, and there's only one theory about their name. And that theory is that they somehow honoured the Afghani camel drivers working in Australia in the late 1860s. And their presence was responsible for the name the Gan, 
which takes supplies to Alice Springs. Oh, that big dead railway. Yes, yeah. yes. It was built by the main, well, helped largely by the um, imported labour. And another testament to how the Australians love to abbreviate things. Yes. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm surprised it actually didn't get an Australian O at the end of it. It's well, a <laughs> Agano. <laughs> well, the Afghan biscuit has a thickish chocolate-flavoured biscuit base onto which a rich dark chocolate icing is swirled with half a walnut placed in the middle of the icing, half a walnut kernel, that is. Now, the theory, and it is only a theory, is that the chocolate base is the dark, tanned Afghani man's head, the dark chocolate icing is his dark hair, and the walnut kernel represents the turban. Uh. Now, pragmatists suggest that this is too detailed and that the Afghan biscuits are called Afghans simply because they're dark. Oh, really? Oh, I see. The Afghan hound. I just looked up what one looks like. I needed reminding. Oh, they're wonderful. Look at that. Huh? I, I was patron of the Afghan hounds, as you Get out. Yes, because they looked like me. A bit. You were in May West. No, no, May wasn't involved in that. You were part of the Afghan Hound Association. Yes. I love Afghan hounds. Did they're you very, have one? They're intelligent, sleek people. They look... An Afghan hound looks like a cross between Cher and Barbara Streisand. You can say what you will, the Afghan hound doesn't care because it has aristocracy on its side. It certainly looks entitled. All right. <laughs> Shall we uh, move on? Yes, let's do. Oh, hunky-dory. Oh, he's, he's famous. He's um, a Japanese golfer on the PGA Tour. Well, a listener wrote... Uh, that he was listening to the radio and he heard a man use this phrase, hunky-dory, and he'd never, he wasn't familiar with the phrase. He said, does it come from New Zealand? Well, the short answer is no, it doesn't come from New Zealand. And the listener sent me the radio link where he heard the expression and unfortunately, the New Zealand man speaking on radio got it wrong because he said honky-dory. <laughs> and that's not it. It's always been hunky-dory, meaning everything is okay or good. Was it the accent that did it? Maybe well, I listened very carefully and okay. he definitely said honky. Oh. Um, hunky is the correct version of the term which began to spread in America during the 1860s. It seemed to come um, from a song widely sung in America by a singing group called the Christie Minstrels and they sang One of the boys am I that always am in clover with spirits light and high tis well I'm known all over I'm always to be found singing in my glory with your smiling faces round tis then I'm hunky-dory. Now, the Christies, the father and son who formed the Christie Minstrels, were of Irish extraction, and it's believed that the term might have had its roots in Ireland and became very widely used in America during the 1860s. It was even used in advertising. I found a soap advertisement which advised, in the morning, wash with Castile soap in soft rainwater, and you're all hunky-dore, as fresh as a lily and as sweet as a pink. Oh. So it was widely enough known to be used persuasively. Now, the expression seems to be a combination of two existing terms. Hunky, the long-established slang word meaning fit and healthy, still used by women to describe an attractive man. What isn't clear how dory came to be added, but there is deduced to be a Japanese influence. Oh, really? Now, you'll like this bit, Graham. The Japanese term honcho dory means something like main street, and many cities have one. United States sailors would have known that because especially the streets known as honky-dory were often sought by sailors looking for pleasures after a long sea trip. 
So, to sum it up, we really don't know for sure how exactly the term hunky-dory arose, but it went into common American use 160 years ago and still seems to be an occasional use, at least by one New Zealander who was recently heard saying it on the radio. Oh, okie-dokie hunky-dory. Yes. Sounds very Japanese, doesn't it? Like it might come with squid. With a squid? I'll have the okie-dokie hunky-dory, thank you very much. Well, you go ahead and have one of those. Thank you. Um, That is fascinating. And, of course, there's the famous David Bowie album called Hunky Dory. Yes, well, that was 1971. I mean, it has to to have been significant in our language Mm. in the 70s because David Bowie, whose big deal, had an album called Hunky Dory in 1971. So, obviously, he knew the expression, Mm. but he called it Hunky Dory, not not Honky Dory. No, no. Hunky Dory. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing outfit he was wearing at May West's that night, wasn't it, Max, (laughs) when we were there? I, I... I've never met him. I went to his concert. I went to David Bowie's concert. All right. Now, we're moving on to something called Angostura Bitters. Bitters. It's a a little addition sometimes to cocktails, uh, flavoursome. You know about them? Yeah. Angostura Bitters, well, it's a concoction in a little bottle. It's made with the dried root of the gentian plant added to vegetable juices and spices, and it results in an intriguingly bitter mixture intended to be added to cocktails, also occasionally to soups, salad dressings, gravies, and even to desserts. It's also believed to be a remedy for hiccups and to help with the setting and upset stomach. Now, the mixture, Angostura bitters, originated in Venezuela, 1824 and has been on sale around the world since 1830. There's actually a tree in South America called the Angostura tree with a very bitter bark, but but no, the bottled fluid is in no way connected with that tree and there is no bark, Angostura bark at all in Angostura bitters. The mixture is, or was, named after a city, the city of Angostura from which the mixture originated. But that's a bit confusing now because the tree bark, the city, the city doesn't exist anymore. In 1846, the city of Angostura had its name changed to Suidad Bolivar. So there's no city called Angostura, but there's a bottle of of bitters called Angostura. Now, what is it? Angostura bitters is an alcoholic mixture. It has a concentrated bitter taste from gentian, herbs, bark, roots, orange peel, fruit and spices because of their flavour and their medicinal properties. It's infused with 44.7 ethanol, typically on uh, deck for flavouring beverages or less often food. The bottle is easily recognised because a distinct oversized label, Angostura, which is Spanish for narrowing, and the town of Angostura was located in the first narrowing of the Orinoco River. And there's usually a picture of Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria on the label since Angostura won a medal at the 1873 World Fair in Vienna. Mm-hmm. So that is all you need to know about Angostura. Comes in a tiny little bottle. Yes. Handy to keep once it runs out. Well, you don't need to use very much, do you? No. It's sort of a dash. No. Mm-hmm. Um... Muhammad Ali, he said that was the only alcohol he ever drank in his life because he didn't actually realise it had alcohol. Oh, it hasn't got very much. No, it has, but it had some. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Who was mean enough to tell him? No, um, well, it was, he didn't think it had alcohol in it. They said, you know, I, I, I don't drink, I'll have a, um, a, a, a lime, lemonade, lime, with, lemonade, lemonade with, with a dash of Angostura. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, today is relevant um, to the currently observed duration of what is known as the working week because 
there was a London carpenter called Samuel Parnell, and he was on one of the immigrant ships coming to New Zealand in 1840, and there was lengthy discussion on that long journey about just how long a working week should be. Mr. Parnell was very strong in his belief that a workman should not be expected to work any more than eight hours at a day. Now, when the ship arrived once in Wellington, Mr. Parnell got to work, and he organised the first workers' strike in New Zealand, adamant that anyone accepting anyone expecting employees to work more than eight hours in a day should be thrown into Wellington Harbour. So, on September the 1st, 1840, a resolution was passed by the carpenters laid down that carpenters would work only eight hours in any day, and this was very strongly supported. By 1857, it was made a formal rule of the building industry, and that made New Zealand the first country in the world where a trade had influenced such an administrative stance to be brought into effect. Now, the ruling applied only to those employing tradesmen and labourers, but pressure went on and on to require all employers to observe an eight-hour day, and it took nearly eight more years, but in 1936, the eight-hour day became a legal necessity to be observed by employers, and the whole process had begun 161 years ago today, September the 1st, 1857, wow. when the carpenters resolved in Wellington that they were only going to work eight hours a day. Marvellous. All right. Fabulous little bit of history. Um, I'd like to go out with a tune from Hunky Dory. It's a beautiful thing. I've just remembered. Uh, there's a song on it called Kooks. And Coots? Kooks. K-O-O-K-S. Meaning sort of slightly unusual people. Yes, yes exactly. As in kooky. Yeah, because it's a beautiful little um, song dedicated about his son and actually written to his son. Uh, very, very, I think, newborn at the time. It became Duncan Jones, the film director, Dave Bowie's son. And it's just saying... We're, we're nutty parents and we wish you all the best. I would think that Bowie himself could have been described as kooky. That who, that who he's saying is kooky. He's not saying his son is oh, kooky. I see. He's <laughs> saying, you've got some pretty kooky parents, but we love you very much. It's a lovely thing. Max, thank you. Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow So take a chance With a couple of cooks Hung up on romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow so take a chance with a couple of cooks I'm up on romancing We bought a lot of things to keep you warm and dry On a funny old crib on which the paint won't dry I bought you a pair of shoes A trumpet you can blow And a book of rules what to say to people when they pick on you Cos if you stay with us you're gonna be pretty cookie too Will you stay in our lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cos we believe in you Soon you'll grow, so take a chance With a couple of kooks on a fun romance 
Don't pick fights with the bullies or the cats Cause I'm not much cop at punching other people's dads And if the homework brings you down Then we'll throw it on the fire and take the car downtown Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow, so take a chance With a couple of kooks and up and romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you I just think that's a pretty thing. I hope you did too. Tune from David Bowie's absolutely stunning album, Hunky Dory. Um, I decided to put it on uh, just this week. It was lovely uh, listening to those tunes again. All right. Uh, coming up after new sport and weather, we're going to hook straight into human statistics. Another single subject today where Jonathan, Jonathan Ipsos, Jonathan Dodd, who works for Ipsos, um, uh, a polling company, and it's the world of cyberbullying. Uh, which countries are most sensitive to it and which countries uh, think most should be done or don't care about it? There's one really weird stat. One country uh, is, it doesn't seem to um, worry about it much but thinks the most should be done. What is up with you, Japan? Spo spoiler alert right there. Okay, um, and... Also, coming up later um, this evening, oh, sorry, uh, later uh, in the weekend, tomorrow night, the story of Taropuraha. It's uh, um, uh, an amazing tale. He's often called the Napoleon of New Zealand. There's a, a lot of grim stuff there too, so it uh, might even have to come with a warning. Taropuraha was swift. Gone was any sort of diplomatic endeavouring to settle its um, people peacefully on new lands. He rose up with the absolute destruction on his mind, and many stories have been documented about what happened, but he just went on an absolute bloodbath with local tribes, and basically it slowed him down. He was so incessant and thorough how he went about avenging this. Basically, he had wiped out the opposition in one go. And this comes with a warning if you're slightly sensitive. The chief who had insulted him and his wife, he brought them back to Kapiti. He cut open his wife's stomach, pulled out her innards, pegged them out and made the chief dance around for two weeks while he killed him slowly with a fernery pounder. That tomorrow, a fresh outsider's tale from 11pm. Is there a bit of a scraping, funny sound coming out through your radio? There is mine. Uh, we'll endeavour to fix that.